Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Here are a few things we get wrong about anorexia. Only certain kinds of people can get it. Eating disorders present throughout cultures, throughout socioeconomic status. They don't discriminate. That men don't really develop anorexia. I had a lot of doctors who were treating either the illness or they were treating me as if I was a woman. That anorexia is all about body image. It's not that sense of wanting to achieve some sort of weight or image. I like the feeling of starving. I like that feeling. It makes me feel like I, I'm living, like I experienced something because I don't know any other emotion. I'm Kion Wolf. Find out how two people have had very different experiences with anorexia. That's coming up next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. For many people, our relationship with food is complicated. And when you have anorexia, well, that relationship is not only complicated, it's often misunderstood and extremely isolating. Later, you're going to meet Ken. He considers himself recovered from anorexia now, but for over 30 years, he found limited resources as a man with this eating disorder, which is most commonly associated with women. And in a little bit, you'll meet Agatha. She's been living with anorexia and bulimia for decades, and she talks frankly with me about how it's controlling her life. But before we get started, I want to let you know that if you or someone you care about is struggling with an eating disorder, call or text the National Eating Disorders Association. Their helpline is available at 800-931-2237. We'll give that number out a couple times throughout the show. And before we hear these personal stories, I wanted to get some context around eating disorders. Mary Dobson is a psychotherapist and certified eating disorder specialist. She's also the founder of the Lift Wellness Group based in Westport, Connecticut. I asked why anorexia and bulimia are so often paired together. What are they? And what are we talking about when we talk about eating disorders? So anorexia is the refusal to maintain an appropriate body weight for one's height. And so that refusal, and refusal is an interesting word because it's, it's often something that is well beyond someone's control or jurisdiction. And when anorexia progresses, it is uh, by no means a choice, but rather a uh, mental compulsion that is dominating the person's daily activities and directing their behavior. But when someone is typically a percentage below an ideal body weight for their height. And by ideal, you mean healthy. Right. So a um, typically there's a bell curve with regards to a appropriate percentage of uh, body fat. Um, inadequate body fat uh, leads to certain physical and mental uh, results. And some of those physical results can be hair loss, um, muscle atrophy, amenorrhea or a loss of period, a feeling of malaise, um, and also interestingly, sometimes some psychological uh, repercussions like a preoccupation with food or a preoccupation with uh, cooking shows or uh, food magazines. Um, So the deprivation will actually yield these additional secondary psychological symptoms. And so sometimes that's how someone will access help for anorexia. Now, interestingly, bulimia is a very different diagnosis. And sometimes someone can have a dual diagnosis of anorexia and bulimia in tandem. But bulimia is um, typically characterized by the consumption of calories and then purging sometime after, usually within the three-hour range of the consumption of calories. And bulimia can be something that is done because a person has a tremendous amount of stress. Bulimia can be something that is a 
uh, a coping mechanism. Um, bulimia is not always uh, started because someone is uh, trying to be thinner. And um, similarly, anorexia is often uh, achieved accidentally due to anxiety or um, an accidental weight loss due to illness, and then a difficulty getting back to one's ideal body weight for you know secondary psychological characteristics that could come up. So there, it's it's uh, very complicated conditions that are often overly simplified by the media. I imagine that it's hard enough having anorexia and bulimia. There's a lot of desperation. And at the same time, people don't really understand what you're going through. So what are ways that eating disorders are misunderstood? People think that eating disorders are a vanity issue. And they think people are just sort of trying to make themselves smaller because it's fashionable. And uh, and that's not at all the case. Eating disorders present throughout the population, um, throughout cultures, throughout um, socioeconomic status. They don't discriminate. Um, people get eating disorders because eating disorders are a mental health condition and they're born of um, depression and anxiety and other genetic conditions. In fact, you know, one day we might be able to predict who is going to be high risk for eating disorders by looking at genes. And there are people working on that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not like this is something that people choose. People don't wake up in the morning and say, you know, I want to do this terrible thing to my body. Um, they're doing it out of um, the word you use, desperation, is, is very much true. And unmet mental health needs, insufficient access to mental health treatment, and that's where these issues are coming from. And that's what makes them get to the point where someone would need to, you know, receive help for these um, symptoms. So it's a lot of compassion is, is in order, much more so than eating disorders received generally from the media. What would you say is the biggest obstacle in someone's path when they're trying to get help? Right. I mean, I'm sure there are medical emergencies that happen as a result of this condition that can either encourage someone to get help or make things even harder. But overall, what what's in the way, for the most part, for people who want to get help? You know, I sometimes equate it to something like substance abuse, where often there's there's a lot of high stakes. Physical health is uh, at risk. Uh, relationships are strained. And this disorder is dramatically impairing this person's life. And yet they receive such comfort from the, the very thing that is harming them. And so the fear of losing the coping strategy that is so effective in relieving whatever it is that they're feeling, pain or anxiety or trauma, the pain of sort of coming to grips with having to lose uh, that very effective coping strategy is overwhelming for people. And so that's where good therapy comes in um, and really kind of validating that, yes, your eating disorder does provide you with tremendous comfort and reassurance. And it, it feels like a friend sometimes. And you will have to grieve the loss of this element in your life that is soothing to you. Um, but you can live without it. And we can find other ways of getting these needs met. And you can grow to become the kind of person who's able to live without this kind of a, a soothing technique through the process of, you know, sometimes it's talk therapy and also nutrition work and kind of, you know, learning, I can eat these foods and I, my body can tolerate these foods. I can eat all foods in variety and moderation and nothing bad is going to happen to me. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to live through it and become stronger as a result. Um, one thing that I see as I read up on stories of people who struggle with anorexia and bulimia, one thread is this feeling of desperation and sadness and loneliness and um, fear that this is insurmountable. And so for those who are maybe feeling that way right now, what do you wish they would keep in mind? Anorexia is 
a leading killer in the US. Anorexia has a very high mortality rate. It has one of the highest mortality rates of all mental health issues. One of the reasons for that, it's not just that anorexia is so hard on the body. It's also that there's a very high rate of suicidality among people with anorexia. And the reason for that is because of what you speak of, which is that it's extraordinarily overwhelming to have an eating disorder. People feel very misunderstood. People feel very isolated and ashamed. And, you know, the good news is there have never been so many wonderful treatment options of all different kinds. You know, there are outpatient and intensive outpatient programs like the one that I run. And then there are more intensive options than that. And so there are a lot of opportunities for people to get help and to connect with other people who are struggling and learn from their experiences and also have a bit of a mentorship. You know, we do a lot of group work because it's such an isolating illness. And so connecting people with one another is really instrumental in their success. And I always say, you know, hopefully they will stay in touch far longer than, you know, they're with us as patients and continue to provide support for one another. So it's important to focus on, you know, the the people that are walking that walk and, you know, follow in their footsteps. You just made me think about the two people that you'll hear in this show. I've interviewed them already and um, I've been thinking about both of them a lot since our conversation a lot. And um, regardless of what happens in the recovery for each uh, or the life path of each of these people. Um, by being on this show, they're, they're mentors already by talking about it. Yeah, I, I think that the beautiful thing in life is that when you go through something, you are then that much stronger and you can hand someone the keys to part of the solution and how you were able to overcome what you went through. And so your experience can develop value. Value and meaning are created from this terrible time that seems sort of senseless in the grand scheme of things. Um, And yet for somebody else, it could be instrumental in learning that there is hope. You can get better. And so I think personal stories are much more powerful in the recovery process than we give them credit for. And so that's why I'm I'm just so glad that you're highlighting this issue. I think it's really important. And some people will inadvertently hear these words and they will be turned towards a different path than the one that they're on. Mary Dobson, thank you so much for talking with me. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This was a, a delight. You can find more information on Mary's work with Lift Wellness Group on our website, ctpublic.org audacious. Now I want you to meet Agata Gavron from Saskatchewan, Canada. Anorexia and bulimia have been part of her life for over 30 years. I asked her to tell me what it feels like to have it. The feeling that I get, especially from purging, is almost like getting out my demons. I've never been able to deal with my emotions or sharing them with somebody. Like you have family or you have friends that you come and you know, you say, yeah, I had a crappy day today and blah, blah, blah. I don't have that. It's all shoved inside and then it just blows up. And I think food is just a, almost like a conveyor belt that lets me stop everything. But if I could use something else, I would gladly do so. How do you summarize what your life is like now uh, with food? It's a prison. (laughs) I feel such a huge relief when I get it all out. It's almost like going to the middle of the forest and screaming at the top of my lungs. Like that full, everything that you've got, that sort of feeling. It feels so good. I don't know why. And it's so stupid because on the other side, it's killing me, right? Like it's, it's first. So you asked me what my relationship with food is like. So considering that food is such a big part of any sort of social interaction with people, right? You go out to a dinner, you go to, to a movie and a dinner, you go, you know, 
I don't have that. I have a really small set of individuals who understand my disorder. And when I go out with them, it's okay if I don't eat, they don't pressure me. I'll just sit there and it's okay for me. I don't have to. It's difficult with my family. And this is one of the reasons why I've never, I think the last Christmas, like kind of family event that I had was probably when I was like 13. And even then it was really awkward for me because I didn't really want to eat. And it's not, again, it's not that sense of wanting to achieve some sort of weight or image. I like the feeling of starving. I like that feeling. It makes me feel like I, I'm living, like I experienced something because I don't know any other emotion. So it's like you're in this prison and you find freedom within the prison when you purge. Yes. And at the same time, you are constantly feeling alone. Yeah. And then you just go back in. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm in prison and once in a not once in a while, but regularly, I make the effort of trying to open up the bars and I poke my head outside. I'm just like, oh, that feels great. But you know what? I'm not ready yet. I'm just going to go back inside and do it again. I imagine that people, when they look at you, they know that there's, I mean, you sent us these pictures of you um, and it is clear. Yeah. I actually don't go out. Like I don't go to the mall. I avoid because the one thing that I really hate is let's say you have, I'm walking and there are maybe some teenage girls walking behind me and all I hear are whispers. And I know, like, I know. And then they give me like this weird look. I try to be a very good actress. I hide all my feelings. So they don't know what I'm feeling inside at all. But all it is, is mine, is how I feel. The way I look is how I feel. I also get comments where, let's say I go to like 7-Eleven and grab like a Slurpee or something. I'll get ladies asking me like, how did you lose so much weight? And I'm like, are you kidding me? starvation has anybody felt like they wanted to save you they did it so yes and that's that's actually very annoying because they think they know how to cure me or they think they know what's best but what they don't know is the whatever 30 plus years that i've lived with this they have no clue all they see is what's on the media like girls wanting to be models and girls going to some retreats to learn how to eat and do crafty things and blah, blah, blah. That's bullshit. That, maybe that worked. Yes, sure. Sure. I don't want to say because that certainly does work, right? People do recover. I think what's, what's lacking is the healthcare professionals. I don't think they realize the root cause of some of these eating disorders because there's so many different ones. And yes, most of them do probably originate in like junior high, high school, where people are being teased about how they look. But there's a whole whack of other reasons. Yeah, I think the the usual story is, I don't look skinny enough to attract someone. And my self-worth is attached to whether I think I can attract someone. And this is something I can control. And so that's, that's, I'm sure, one realm of anorexia oh, yeah. uh, and or bulimia. Uh, but that's not what we're talking about here with you. Yeah. Is there a diagnosis that, that addresses what yours contains and what it doesn't? Or is it all just anorexia? They actually diagnosed me, I believe, as uh, anorexia nervosa is what they actually diagnosed it as. I think that's just the illness itself. I don't think it has anything to do with the mental side of it. I attempted at getting help when I was probably... 16, 17. And that's where they did like a day long assessment of like psychological, physical, all sorts of tests. And that's what they came up with at the end. What was that like going through for you? We're like really facing it with a medical professional. I found that a lot of the questions that were being asked, aside from the physical, were irrelevant to me. Like what? When you eat, how do you feel when you eat? Image related questions or what is your idea? What do you think an ideal body weight would be? What would have been better questions for you? What do you feel? How do you feel when you 
starve and purge? What do you long for the most? What do you long for the most? Um, human touch. The only the only time that I recall being hugged is when my mom would either give me like this really possessive hug when I was when I was a child or when I was losing weight and she would literally feel me out and it was so obvious like she wouldn't even hug me she would just kind of like touch my measure you yeah like like really weird I have really few recollections where I experienced like a warm embrace of what my what somebody may, may describe yeah but it's okay. I had, um, I mentioned to Jessica that I had a cat. She was like my savior. She was, I remember like holding her and just getting like shivers up my back. Like that feeling of touching something alive. I feel the need to tell you that I wish I could hug you. <sighs> if I were in that room with you and I held my arms open, what would you do? I wouldn't let go. About three years ago, I tried to get use my benefits and start um, like massage therapy so I could get a little bit of touch. That was a joke because <laughs> the two individuals that I went to were like literally afraid to break anything. And then I just didn't want the comments again because they were asking, like, you know, like, what's wrong? And I just want to, I just want to sleep, like, get massage. That's all. I don't want to talk. So I, I didn't try again after. Like, I, I cut my own hair. I don't go to spas or anything. Like, I don't really know what it's like to take care of myself anymore. I used to when I was a teenager. Obviously, I wanted to look good and things like that. But um, now I just. I don't care. I honestly, I wear like the same clothes every single day, even though I have a lot of different things I can wear. I just choose to say, to do the same thing over and over. One thing that also keeps me uh, on a chain almost is my uh, criminal record. That's right. For stealing food. What kind of food would you steal? Ramen noodles, cucumbers. Did you know you can shove a whole rotisserie chicken in your bag if you really try a whole rotisserie chicken, huh? Yeah. I mean, did you have it like a lining in there so it didn't yeah, get gross? No. So good. When you when you put it when you they're actually sealed pretty well if you walk at a steady pace and you don't run. <laughs> yeah, I know it's it's kind of stupid. And was the and was the idea behind stealing it because well, hell, you're not digesting it, so why pay for it? Yeah, yeah, like why even? Or I actually wanted no. So when I first did it, I wanted to know what it feels like inside. Because it was something new, some like, so certain foods are better for throwing up than others. What do you picture in order to make it happen? So as I'm doing it, I go like, I got to get all this out. Like, not as in food, but the, the emotions. I need to feel empty and start start again. That's what it is. And that's like every single it's Sisyphean. Yeah. And I do the same thing every day. For over 30 years. That was Agata Gavron. And if you or someone you care about could use help or guidance with an eating disorder, call the National Eating Disorders Association at 800-931-2237. When we get back. I want to help whomever I can or, you know, do like charity work and at least knowing that I'm doing that for a purpose with an end in mind, it gives me a reason to keep going, gives me some purpose. More from Agata, plus what it was like to go through life with anorexia as a man. When you're in the middle of it, talking about it is almost impossible because you're living it and you're in pain. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. 
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. A lot of people struggle with sleep apnea and with CPAP machines. Dr. Carl Muller, a head and neck surgeon with Hartford Hospital, describes Inspire, a surgical alternative to the CPAP approach. Only about 60% of patients can tolerate CPAP real well. Inspire is a surgical alternative to CPAP. It's an outpatient surgery. It takes about two hours. And essentially what it does is it picks up when you're taking a breath and sends a two-second electrical pulse to the tongue, which causes the tongue to stick out a little bit and stiffen and prevent the airway from collapsing. Hartford Hospital has performed more than 200 Inspire therapy surgeries. If you tried and failed with CPAP, you could be a candidate for this minimally invasive procedure. Patients with moderate to severe sleep apnea are candidates. There is a weight criteria, so you have to have a body mass index below 35, and you have to have to have tried and failed CPAP. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're getting to know two people who have very similar and very different experiences with anorexia. Later you'll meet Ken who spent decades trying to make sense of his condition, and he now considers himself recovered. But right now, I want to get back to my conversation with Agata Gavron. She's from Saskatchewan, Canada, and she's been living with anorexia and bulimia for over 30 years. Before we continue, though, I want to let you know that if you or someone you care about is struggling with an eating disorder, give a call to the National Eating Disorders Association at 800-931-2237. We originally met Agata when we were producing a show about medical aid and dying, which is legal in Canada. Starting in mid-March 2023, it'll also become available for Canadians whose only medical condition is a mental illness. And Agata, as you'll hear, is a proponent of this option. Her story was so compelling that we wanted to feature her for this show, so let's get back to our conversation. I imagine that people think, okay, medical aid and dying equals someone with terminal cancer, and they may not picture someone with anorexia being a candidate for this type of thing. What would you say to them? The pain that I have, I, I would take physical pain any day. Like when I lost out my own teeth, I took like a pointy nail filer to dig them out because I was in so much physical pain. I would rather do that than deal with this pain. Because this pain, I'm dealing with alone. Like, I'm completely alone. The face that I put on during the day is not the face that is at home. I don't know what um, therapy is like in Canada or what the system's like. uh, But for those who would say, why don't you get someone who specializes in in anorexia and get help? Why, Why don't you do that? What do you say? Why? Because I feel like I would lose myself completely. At least now, for now, I still have my job. I still have, you know, like some something that keeps me going, that gives me purpose in life. I don't want to be in a situation where everything that I've worked for in my life, despite anorexia, is just going to wipe everything clean and start from the bottom. Why would that happen if you saw a therapist? Anorexia is like breathing to me. It's part of who I am. And I don't want to change anymore. At one point, I wanted to. I actually don't. Because then I know there's expectations that I would need to meet. Certain stages, right, of recovery. And I don't want that. I don't want to lie with myself, knowing so deep that this is the only thing that has been with me all this life that has been through me, with me through all the good, the bad, whatever. It's the only thing constant. Why would I want to damage that relationship that I have with it? How will you know, how do you think you'll know when you want to use, if you'll want to use medical aid in dying? I will know. And that may be tomorrow, maybe 10 years, maybe not at all. But I want to have that that option. I want to have that because I don't want to be in a situation where people put an effort trying to cure me or to save me, knowing full well that I don't want to. I, I don't want to. I'm tired. Like I'm, 
I don't know what life is like, normal life. I didn't go to any of my graduations, school events, none. Like, none, none of that. I don't know what, that's, what it's like. What kind of life is that? I would rather have like a lifelong prison term than, than deal with this. It's, it's not fair. And it's, if I choose, what I'm worried about is having to jump through hoops in order to get this approved. I don't, that sounds so stupid. How I'm, I'm applying to, to die, like application to die. Like that's, it's my choice. And whoever legislate, whoever says yes or no, you can, is preventing me from coming to rest or to like, just, just to finish. Then I'll do it myself and who's gonna who's gonna say, right? I would rather choose made because that gives me time to prepare to um, take care of what I want to take care of and to and to actually live life enjoying it. Because now I know like I have this option, but I wanna still do this, do this, do this. And for me, it's more like um, I wanna do these talks type of thing or like help whomever I can or, you know, do like charity work, which is what I really, really enjoy. And at least knowing that I'm doing that for a purpose with an, with an end in mind, it gives me a reason to keep going, gives me some purpose. Whereas if I didn't have made as an option, then it's like, I'm just going to be waiting for that one day where I just like, it. So in a, in a way, having the option to use medical aid and dying made may make your life longer. It does. For those who are listening to this and they've got someone in mind who they think may have an eating disorder or they know has an eating disorder, what should they say or shouldn't they say in order to not make things harder than they have to be or to be helpful? You don't have to say to them that you know, because they know that you know. Don't think that you know how to help them, because you don't. Nobody knows. I don't even know how to What would have helped me? Somebody taking me by the hand and just saying it's okay. And don't let their limitations affect you. So, for example, don't make plans based on the fact that that person doesn't eat. Because for me, when people do that, it makes me feel like a burden. If you could wave a magic wand, I don't even know if you can answer this, but if you could wave a magic wand and this disorder evaporates for a week, how would you spend that week? I would travel to Poland maybe and just go back to where I lived, where I grew up. I would dress up nice. I would maybe put on some makeup. And I would go somewhere. It doesn't matter if somebody or by myself. Like I would go to a movie maybe or go to a swimming pool and swim. Because that's a sport I used to love. Actually, I would be happy. I would be happy if that were just for one day. I, one week would be too much. If you could go back in time and talk to yourself when this first began, what would you say to that little version that little Agatha that um that despite all the troubles that are that are ahead that you can still kind of make it your life still can have meaning even though it feels like it does that was Agatha Gavron of Saskatchewan Canada if you're struggling with an eating disorder, the phone number for the National Eating Disorders Association is 800-931-2237.
after the break. I was rushed to the hospital, and there the doctor said, uh, asked me what was going on, and he said, you know, you're a man, and I haven't seen this, uh, but you have all the symptoms of what's called anorexia. What it's like to experience anorexia as a man, and what life is like when you feel like you've recovered. I'm Kion Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. You're listening to the new investigative reporting podcast, In Absentia, which means you're interested in getting to the facts and uncovering the truth. If you'd like to help us continue our investigative work, consider making a donation. Visit ctpublic.org slash tap support and contribute today. That's ctpublic.org slash TAP support. Thank you for being a part of the Accountability Project. If you've never donated to this station before, that's okay. Public radio is available to everyone for free. But we do rely on listener support from those who are able to give. So join the community of supporters for Public Media Giving Days. And thanks. Give now at ctpublic.org donate. This is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. For today's show about anorexia, we wanted to make sure we heard from a man who's been through it. According to the National Eating Disorders Association, men represent 25% of people with anorexia nervosa, and they're at a higher risk of dying, in part because they're often diagnosed later, since many people assume that men don't have eating disorders. So a condition that's inherently lonely is made even more isolating when your gender keeps you from getting the care that you need. Ken Capobianco is the author of the novel Call Me Anorexic, The Ballad of a Thin Man, inspired by his three decades of living with anorexia. He now considers himself recovered. I asked him to bring me back to the beginning. My story with anorexia starts when I was around 17, 18. I mean, I I wasn't large, I wasn't overweight, uh, but I was, at that time, I would be shopping in the Husky section. <laughs> Which see, still you know, exists, amazingly. Does it really? Yes, Coles. Okay. At least online. I, I would be shopping in the Husky section, and uh, I wanted to uh, lose weight. I mean, there were two motivating factors. I was a very good baseball player, and I needed to get better shape. And um, also, I wanted to attract women. I noticed all the hot women were gravitating towards the thin, kind of either athletic or rock star kind of guys. So I started changing my diet and running uh, with the cross-country team. And I uh, lost weight. I mean, I lost weight, got in great, good, great shape. And then I noticed that I had transformed myself and I was happy, but I wasn't stopping the food restriction. I, I, I started dating um, women they were telling me, a few were telling me, okay, uh, what are you doing? And my goal was to attract the women. And all of a sudden, I noticed the women were saying, it's a little bit too much. I want you to eat more. And then when I resisted that, I realized that I, something was going on that was bigger than me. And that's when I started slowly getting, it became problematic. When was it that the word anorexia really start inhabiting your life? Uh, because I, I honestly thought I was dieting. And it, it really started one night when I was in college, about 20. I went to a midnight screening of a film. And uh, it was a documentary of The Who. And I didn't eat all for the last two days. And I was in the movie theater. And I lost motor control. And uh, I was rushed to the hospital. And there, the doctor said, uh, asked me what was going on. And he said, you know, you're a man. I haven't seen this, uh, but you have all the symptoms of what's called anorexia. And I, I was like, I had known. I mean, obviously, uh, I, I had paid attention to Karen Carpenter. Everybody knew Karen Carpenter at the time. She died of Karen. You know, but, so I, I just said, no, that can't be. But that was the first time someone brought that up to me. I was officially diagnosed about two years later. 
by a doctor at Mass General. Uh, you know, he had told me then, and I was in the back of my mind, and I kept thinking, no, no, this can't be. And then um, uh, about two years later in Boston. What effect did that diagnosis have on you? And what did it feel like hearing that also in the context of you're a man, but? Denial. Denial. I was like, no, I'm dying. I, I'm not sick. You know, I, the whole idea, I couldn't wrap my head around that I was a guy because there was no figures. There was no male representation of men with anorexia or men with eating disorders at that time. We're talking early 80s. I was used to researching. I had I had my graduate degree um, from Tufts. So I was used to researching. And I started researching it and I noticed all the symptoms uh, for anorexia was what I was dealing with. And you think, okay, no problem. I'll just make adjustments. But the reality is the disorder is bigger than you. All your conscious choices really are kind of irrelevant because you're compelled to diet. You're compelled to restrict. Let me put it that way. Uh, it doesn't feel like I'm making the choice to. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't eat. When you would eat, what did that feel like? Uh, horrible. Uh, I felt like I was bloated and I was getting fat. I, every time I ate something, I look in the mirror and I'd say, "Uh Oh, I'm going backwards. I'm reverting to the Husky kid. And in many ways, the loss of weight was to get beyond that person, that, that young boy who I did not like. I was very unhappy with that boy. I wanted to run and, and, and lose weight and become a new person. And when I ate, I felt like I was going back to that. So the panic set in, constant anxiety and neurosis. What was the scariest point for you? I had a massive stroke at 45. But at 35, I had double pneumonia. I was very low weight. And they told my brother I was not going to live. And I was in the hospital for four months, and there were no therapists who were eating disorder specialists. Uh, we're talking probably about 95. There, there were no eating disorder specialists. The therapists at that time understood uh, anorexia to a degree, but it was really with women. And, you know, they, they, they plied me with Insure, and yeah, I, I gained weight. But once I got out of the hospital, Four months later, I went back into my apartment, the same darkness, the same triggers, the same, and I just started losing weight again. It was a Band-Aid. Will you tell me about the stroke that you had? Was that related to the anorexia? Yes, yes. I, I can't tell you what I weighed. Let me tell you, put it that way. But I was so low, I couldn't feel the left side of my body. I... I had to relearn how to walk. I had to relearn how to do everything. I, I basically relearned how to live. But the stroke, as tragic as it is, it was, and um, I still live with some of the remnants. Uh, you, you don't get away from it, and I can't do the things I want to do, you know, play basketball or, or run. Um, but even though it almost killed me, it also saved my life. I made changes. I met people. I made connections with people. I, I, I ate. And I said, okay, you will sit here with food in your stomach and you will write. There's no other option. And then I also, the other thing is I started meeting women. And that was very important to me. You know, uh, regaining that connection with women, which was- And that and, confidence, I bet. That confidence, exactly. Confidence and also then regaining your libido. Your libido dies with your appetite. Will you talk more about dealing with doctors as a man with anorexia? What was that like? I had a lot of doctors who were treating either the illness or they were treating me as if I was a woman. I did have one doctor say, "Why did you stop menstruating? Have you stopped menstruating? You know? And I was like, okay, either you're not paying attention or... You're on autopilot or whatever, but 
and they were addressing, you know, what it means to be a male in a culture uh, that expects men to be very strong, very big. And, but I never wanted to be, uh, you know, a Jason Momoa type or uh, The Rock. I wanted, you know, just to be thin. I wanted my heroes were, were rock stars, you know. And you wanted to be Bowie. I mean, I want to be Bowie on a lot of levels. Everybody, everybody wants to be Bowie, you know. But it, you know, the world would be a better place. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it, and that, and you know, for me, young Bruce Springsteen. I was a very big Springsteen fan. Young Bruce Springsteen, you know, uh, that was that was my thing. You think of the all your rock stars, Prince, Mick Jagger. All very, very thin, live guys. So, I, I, But I needed them to bury into my psyche. What do you wish they would have asked? I wanted them to say, okay, Ken, this is who you are. I am going to address you. Exactly what you, who you are, your anxieties. I needed them to speak specifically to my pain, my confusion, my I, I don't believe in God. Don't tell me to higher power or any of that stuff. And, and the doctor who understood this, he connected with me and he understood exactly what I was going through. He understood my relationships with, uh, with women early on. It was no whole bars. We talked about sex a lot. I don't want people dancing around the subject. Go right into it with me. And that's how I deal with things. I think a lot of people feel like they must learn to love themselves. And that includes loving your body. And you've said, I don't love my body, but I'm comfortable in it. Will you talk about that? Absolutely. Yes. This whole, I love my body movement is problematic for me uh, because you cannot tell someone who has struggled with body image to look in the mirror and one day just say, I love my body because it doesn't happen that way. And I've never loved my body and I will never love my body. Even today I get out of the shower and I look in the mirror. Oh, I don't look like Michael Fassbender, you know? And I'm like, Oh, how, how disappointing. But unlike before, I don't say, Oh, I got to starve. Yeah, I've got to keep trying. I say now, it's just who I am. People just don't always look like that. So my perspective has changed. But I do think the I love my body movement puts pressure on people. Because if they say, if I don't love my body, what's wrong with me? All these people love their body. I don't. I must be still problematic. Mm. All these people are happy and love their body. It drives me nuts because the goal is to feel comfortable and accept your body, not love it, which is not feasible for someone like me. Would you describe yourself as recovered? I'd say I've been fully recovered for at least about 10 years. My recovery took about four, four and a half years. It was very, very hard. I mean, that was, that was brutal. But right now, when you when you're struggling with anorexia, you you are obsessed with your body. You're obsessed with food. Food consumes your thoughts. You look at food and you think twice. You worry about calories when you go to a restaurant, and and you know you're recovered once all that disappears. Of course, I check my body, but then I say, okay, no problem, great. Okay, let's move on. I got a book to write. I mean, food just not an issue. It really isn't. And also, I can talk to you about it without being triggered. Uh, because when you're in the middle of it, talking about it is almost impossible because you're living it and you're in pain. And when when I did used to talk about it, even to therapists, I'd be I'd be jumpy and anxiety and and I'd be filled with anxiety. Well, I've asked everything I planned on for this show, and I also feel like we could probably talk for another three hours, but um, is there anything you want to leave the people listening to this with? I think it's important for men to understand if you feel like you have an eating disorder, 
admit it and look for a therapist who is going to understand male anorexia or male eating disorders and also is going to speak to you and will treat you and not the illness. They need to treat you and your narrative. My recovery is not applicable to Bob's recovery or Maurice's recovery or Joe's recovery. They have to figure out their own story. But by, let's say, for me telling my story, it might let them say, okay, I'm not a freak because I thought I was a freak. There were, there were, no, there were no men talking about it. I so appreciate you talking about it. Ken Capabianco, thank you very much. Thank you for giving me the forum. I don't want anyone to go through what I went through, which was a nightmare. So thank you. If you or someone you care about could use some help with an eating disorder, the National Eating Disorders Association hotline is toll-free at 800-931-2237. And you can find more information about all of our guests and links to their work at ctpublic.org slash audacious. This show is produced by me, Jessica severin Martinez, and Katie Talarski, with help from our interns Anya Grandalski and Mira Raju at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Subscribe to Audacious, and you'll always get to hear the show a day early. You can check them out wherever you get your podcasts. And please send me your thoughts on this episode on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kyone Wolf, or you can send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening.